All right, so here's what we've got going on. For the last uh, six or eight weeks, we have been looking at uh, this interaction between Jesus and the scribes, Pharisees, high priest, the Sadducees, uh, everyone who, who is involved here. And so this is Holy Week. This is the week that Jesus is going to go to the cross. And we're, we're now at, at, day, at Wednesday. So it starts out with Jesus looking over the city and weeping and then going, in, or going into the city and everyone saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the next day, Jesus looking over the city and weeping and then going down in the city and flipping tables. Okay, so after he does that, he goes into the temple the next day and he is teaching the people. And so it's really important that we get this scene because it's going to explain what Jesus, the question that Jesus asks here. And so Jesus is probably in Solomon's porch. He's sitting there here on Wednesday. He's got a crowd of people, several hundred, maybe as many as a thousand people in front of him. And he's teaching them. As he's doing that, these Sadducees, Pharisees, uh, temple leadership, political appointees, the professional theologians all come to him and hit him with a bunch of questions. Now remember, the crowd is still out here, so they're hearing the questions and they're hearing Jesus' response. So the first question they ask is, concerning the, the, the fact that he flipped tables, by whose authority are you doing this? Who, who do you think you are? I mean, here's a system that's been in place since the Maccabees. So for several hundred years, we've been doing things this way. Who do you think you are to come in here and just take over? Jesus, again, recognizing that there's a crowd of people in front of him who's listening to everything, said, well, let me ask you a question. Who, by whom did John do his stuff? Now, the people he shows the, the leadership were wusses because they wouldn't answer him. And Jesus said, well, if, you're not gonna, if you don't even know by, who, by whose power John did his works, then I'm not even going to answer your question. Well, that didn't shut him down. They immediately come back with, uh, with some other questions. So he, Jesus, before they do, though, Jesus leaves from turning them to tell the parable of the wicked tenants. If you guys remember that, there's some people who come uh, a man who comes, buys a vineyard, puts some people in charge of it, um, and then he goes off to a far country. While his, he, he's there, he's got people that he's hired to work in that vineyard, and they're working, and then they feel like it's theirs because they're the ones doing all the work. And so he sends workers, and they, they, they beat them, and they do that two or three times. Then he sends his son, and they care about and kill him. And then the text ends with, what person who that happens to, he wouldn't just come in and destroy all those people. Clearly, he's talking about this leadership group, these people who think they're in charge, coming to Jesus and asking him questions. But we saw how this is applying to us, that we've been given a command to do things, and we need to recognize who it is who sent us. And we talked about how easy it is to get so caught up in doing the things that we're doing that we forget whose vineyard it is we're working, that it's Jesus, church. Remember Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. It's Jesus' church. And so it's easy for us to replace our worship 
of God with our service to God. And it's easy for us to forget who's really in charge. And so it's not just a lesson for those people, but everybody's out there hearing this, that Jesus just slammed them. I mean, just absolutely slammed them. Well, they come up with another set of questions. They bring Jesus a coin, and they, are, are, they ask Jesus first. They said, um, so should we be paying taxes? Now, that's a legitimate question that they're asking because here they are, a subjugated people. Here they are in a situation where the Roman government's doing a bunch of stuff they don't agree with. Should we be giving them money? I guarantee you that right now you could go on Facebook and, and Google uh, well, you wouldn't Google on Facebook, but you could go on the interwebs and you could Google or, or, or search, should Christians pay taxes? And you're going to get a thousand different answers, even though Jesus pretty definitively answers the question here. He said, bring me a coin. Whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. Well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things to God that are God's. Now, we talked about in politics in the political world, that we are to be well-informed, we are to vote our conscience. I don't care whether you're right-wing or left-wing, you need to make sure before you get in that voting booth that you bounce your ideas of what you think you're going to vote off of God's Word. That's what should, should, should move you. Not your opinion, your likes, your dislikes, what is this guy going to do with, with uh, blah, 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 blah. I... I said then, and when I preached this sermon, and I have tried for the last several months to, to just limit myself to about 30 minutes a day on Facebook, because if I don't at least spend some time going through and just like, 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 it hurts people's feelings because nobody liked my stuff. So I, I do that, and then I try to breeze through to see who's in the hospital, who's, who, you know, who, what are the big fights, and you go to, there's a, a what's happening in Glencoe, and I can see what everybody's gripping about, um, I can see how people have gotten in trouble. I see that, and then I shut her down. I literally set a timer. 30 minutes is all I get. Because this is what happened yesterday. Yesterday, uh, because of uh, Justice Ginsburg's death, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to educate myself on stuff. And I allowed myself more time than that to, to go out and read the news and, and, you know, read the New York Times, read Fox News, try to get both sides because nobody's in the middle anymore. You either got the, ah or ah, and you have listened to both ahs, and then you try to get, figure out what reality is. And so I did that, and here's what happened. By 3 o'clock yesterday, I was in a foul mood. This whole world is falling apart. What is this idiot even talking about? What is this idiot even talking about? And you know what I can do to fix the whole situation with Justice Ginsburg? Nothing. So the only person that I affected by doing that was my family. That was it. Because I couldn't fix anything. Now I'm not, So we're not saying be an uneducated, just ignorant person who goes in and just you know, closes your eyes and click and that's who I'm going to vote for. Or be as, as hopper as me and vote for Doug Pope for president. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying that as Christians, we should be well-educated. We should know what we're, our positions are, and we should vote. But I, what I am saying is, is that can't define you. Our first allegiance is not to a country and a flag. Our first allegiance is to a king and a kingdom. And what defines us is Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he's building. And we have a task that we've been put on. We've been told, your job as the church is to go make disciples. 
That's what we're supposed to be doing. Doesn't matter what the governor says. Doesn't matter what the mayor says. Doesn't matter what the city council says. Doesn't matter what the president says. Doesn't matter what the Supreme Court justice say. We have a task. And one day we're going to stand in front of our boss and he's going to say, did you do what I asked you to do? And, well, my mom wouldn't let me out to play is not an acceptable answer. And so we as a church have said, doesn't matter what's going on with the COVIDs or with this, that, or the other thing, we have got to be about making disciples. We have to be creative in that, and we're, we've started some, some podcasts and some other stuff, and we, we're, 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 just, we're trying to be creative, we're trying to be smart, but we've got to be about making disciples because that's what God's called us to do. We're going to give to God the things that are God, and we're going to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And when Caesar tries to take the things that are God's, we're not going to let him. So Jesus says that. Now remember, they were being, having a snarky question that they thought would divide up Jesus the people that, again, the questions are coming from here. Jesus is teaching here. They're thinking, if we ask him this and he answers it wrong, all these people are going to leave because that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of the masses. Well, Jesus answers the question perfectly because he's God and it's not really a fair fight. So then we saw last week the Sadducees came and asked Jesus about the resurrection. And you can tell from the tone of their question, this is the kind of question that they, they, they opposed this before. This is their slam dunk. Nobody's given a legitimate answer. They think. I had this happen to me recently. I'm at the doctor's office. Guy sitting across from me, he says, hey, you're the, you're the preacher over at First Baptist, Glencoe, aren't you? You all know North Glencoe, but same difference. I'm I, I, the preacher. Hey, I got, I got a question I want to ask you. And I could tell he figured this was a slam. He's like, so what do you do? What do you, what do you preachers say about when bad things happen to good people? And he could just tell. You could just tell that he, in his mind, see, I've just, I have just debunked Christianity. Ha ha. What are you going to say about that? What you got for that one, biggin? That's the way the Sadducees asked this question. They threw it out there like, what are you going to do now? They created this ridiculous scenario. So a woman goes and gets married to, to, and ends up, this guy dies and she marries the next guy and this guy dies. So when they get to heaven, who's going to be their, the husband? By the way, because I always get accused of not finishing the story, why bad things happen to good people. A, there's only been one good person and the bad things that happened to him, he volunteered for. And B, bad things happen because we're in an age of grace. God is withholding his wrath today so that there can be a time of repentance. If God took everything bad out of this world, we'd be included. Amen. So you don't want God to take care of bad things because that's us. And so it's an easy question, not easy, but it's not a slam dunk question. Well, this wasn't a slam dunk question either. When they asked Jesus, so when she gets to heaven whose husband she's going to be. And Jesus points out, who exactly said everybody was going to heaven? Where's that verse? The only people who make it to heaven are the sons. And so Jesus took their snarky little smart aleck question and pushed it back at them and said, the question you need to be asking yourself is, are you going to heaven? not worrying about these little silly little debates you're having. 
The resurrection is clearly going to happen. The question you need to be asking is, am I a child of the resurrection? So, they're done. The text says, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. The group of experts has been silenced. But they're still there. They're still watching what Jesus has done, probably with a very church look on their face. Jesus has still got the thousand people standing in front of him that he's been teaching. In fact, in Mark's telling of this exact same back and forth, Jesus says to somebody, you're so close to the kingdom. You're so close. And Jesus compassionately recognizes that from this group, there will be people who get saved. We get Nicodemus from that group. We get Joseph of Arimathea from that group. We get a young lawyer that Mark tells us about from that group. Jesus wants them to be saved. Jesus doesn't want it to be right in the argument. He wants them to go to heaven. It is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus is focused on these people. Some of them are so close. So how can we make sure that they see the gospel? So Jesus asks a question, and that's the text that we have today. Jesus opens up and says, let me ask you something. Now, it doesn't, the text doesn't say to whom the question is directed, whether it's directed to the leadership or the question is directed to the crowd or his disciples. We just know that all of them could hear it, and Jesus asked this question. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is a strange question. I would say if I was going door to door or doing EE, this is not the question that I would ask somebody if they were really close to getting saved. But this digs deeply to the heart of the crowd, his own disciples, and the leadership's issue. It really comes down to who is Jesus? Because the question Jesus is asking is, in Psalm 110, which is the psalm that Jesus is talking about, David talking about the Messiah, and everybody in that audience would have known that Psalm 110 is dealing with messianic prophecy. David is talking about the coming Messiah, which would be his son. The Bible says over and over again that that son is coming from the line of David. The promise that is given to David, the promise that's given to Solomon, your throne will last forever. Why would David call his son, grandson, someone that came down his line, why would he call him Lord? Now, it would have been unheard of, unthought of in Middle Eastern culture for a father to call his son Lord. So Jesus is asking the question, why did that happen? Jesus is drilling deeply into the idea of his divinity. Let me read Psalm 110 so you can see how loudly this is proclaimed. In Psalm 110 it says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He being God the Father will lift up his, the Messiah's head. No one in Jesus' audience would have argued that this text is not speaking of the Messiah. If you had polled everybody around Jesus, they would have said of the Messiah, he's someone who's the son of David, he's going to be a great man, he's going to be a powerful man, he's going to be an amazing king. No one expected it to be God himself. That's the mystery. Paul talks about the mystery that was revealed Abraham in his day looking forward to something happening. Today, if you were to sit down with a Jewish scholar, he would say that Jesus was uh, a very well-trained, well-thoughtful teacher. He had lots of good ideas. He was a great guy, but that's where they're going to stop. I was shocked, I think I've shared this with you, when I was in India to find a temple, a Hindu temple, to Jesus. So you go in and there's pictures of Jesus, or what they, everybody perceives to be Jesus. You know the, the picture with the flock of seagulls hair and the, the blue eyes. And there are pictures of that everywhere. And they, they think he's a great guy, an amazing teacher, not God. People throughout human history... It's hard to argue that Jesus wasn't a great man who did amazing things. Whether you believe in miracles or not, if you're like Thomas Jefferson who went through, I have in my office, it's called the Jefferson Bible, where Thomas Jefferson was so arrogant, he literally went through the Bible and cut out the parts he didn't like. And the parts he cut out were all the miraculous stuff. So he believed that Jesus was an unbelievably intelligent teacher, that he was a good man, and he taught us how to do good things. And we should definitely read his teachings and learn from it and apply it to his life, to our lives. But to Thomas Jefferson, Jesus was no different than Seneca or Plato or some other great philosopher. The question that Jesus is asking, that crowd, those leaders, his own disciples... Why did David call the Messiah Lord if he was just going to be another man? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus is saying he's got to be something more. He's got to be something greater. He's got to be God. Now, Jesus had said throughout his ministry, there is no doubt that Jesus knew that he was claiming divinity. In the book of John, we read, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. 
Jesus referring to himself as the son of God was not saying that he's lesser. He was saying, I'm equal to God. I am God himself. And the problem the world has with agreeing that Jesus is God is that that means he has the right to tell us what to do. Because God made us. I mean, we've talked before that I don't believe in atheists. I don't believe they exist. I think God has placed in every human heart the innate understanding that there is a God and he's a rewarder of those who do good and a punisher of those who do bad. And every human being understands that. Mars Hill Church in uh, Seattle, Washington was doing a set of interviews with self-proclaimed atheists in L.A. They were putting together a, a video series. And they had not started the video series yet, but everybody was in these booths, and they already had cameras on them. And it was six people that were supposed to be so atheists that they're willing to go to a church and talk about their atheism, which is pretty atheist. In L.A., as I've been told happens, an earthquake occurred. The ground starts rolling. Of the six, five of them cried out to God to save them. We know that there's a God. And the reason why we claim to not believe in God is because we don't want somebody telling us what to do. Because we all innately recognize that if there is a God, he made us, and so he has the right to tell us what to do. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was take the little, army, the little green army men, right, and lay them out and have these battles, and remember, there's always the, there's the little army guy with the metal detector. And I've all, I know he's a minesweeper, but when you're a kid, you're like, well, what is he doing? What is this guy doing? This guy's the wimp of the crowd. And so, but I would lay him out, and then what, every one of you who've had kids knows exactly what happens. Kabow! And you throw him everywhere. The little army man didn't get to tell me what they wanted to do. They did, the, the guy with the metal detector didn't get to do an MOS change. I made this setup. I get to blow it up. I get to walk to the middle of my sandbox being Godzilla if I want to, which I did frequently. Ah, crush my little army men. If a potter makes a pot, he gets to decide what to do with it. If God made us, if he actually exists, he gets to tell us what to do. And if Jesus is God, he gets to speak to us. Jesus said, don't tell me you love me if you don't do what I said to do. We can't say, well, I'm a spiritual person, I love God, but hey, I'm not going to do that stuff. We don't get that choice. That's not how this works. It doesn't work that way with your kids. I love you, Dad, but I know you said to be home by 11. I'll be home when I feel like it. Catch you on the flip side. How well would that work in your house? Probably not really well. And so God made us so he gets to make these demands on us. And what made these people mad and these people didn't quite understand and his disciples didn't have a full grasp on was to enter the kingdom, you have to acknowledge the king. Before you can get saved, you have to say, you are God. In fact, in Romans 10, 9, it says it this way. 
if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, Lord is not a word that we use in English a whole lot. In fact, I don't think I've ever called anybody outside the church Lord. When Old English was in place and the Bible that we have now was translated, Lord meant the person who owns the land that I live on and can tell me what to do. Super boss. Jefe, if you speak, learn Spanish in high school. And so... Lord means that he's the ultimate boss, the ultimate authority. He gets to say more than anybody else what I do. Now, what the text says is, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we've tweaked that in the church today and made it say something else. We say, why don't you make Jesus the Lord of your life? That's not how Paul says it. Confession is just agreeing with God, right? We, we've talked about this. We know what confession means. Anybody that's watched Perry Mason or um, I, I, what's a modern lawyer show? I don't know. Boston Law? I, I, I don't know. But if you've watched, we've all watched lawyer shows where we know what confession is, right? The guy's on the stand. Where were you on the night of June 3rd? I didn't do it. Where were you on that? And then he asks him a bunch of questions and finds the guy, oh, I did it. I killed her. And here's the gun, right? I mean, we've all seen the show. Confession is agreeing with the person with what they're saying. So Paul says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You're not making Jesus anything. Jesus is Lord. It's just agreeing with God that he's Lord. You don't make God anything. He is God, whether you agree with it or not. So confession is saying, I'm going to live my life in the light of that. I'm agreeing with you that you are supreme. You are my God. You have the authority to tell me what to do, and I don't have the authority to argue with it. That is what Jesus is trying to point out. They're so close to the kingdom. They're almost there. What they have to recognize is, is that Jesus has authority. In our culture today, we don't believe anybody can tell us to do anything. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. I'm going to find my own happiness. And you know what? If that's really the way that you live your life, I love you, but you're not going to go to heaven. Because the way that we get saved is letting Jesus be the boss of our life. And so if you go through your life and you say, yeah, I know the Bible says that I'm not supposed to do this, but I prayed about it and God gives me peace. I feel the Lord leading me to go ahead and disobey what the text says. That is not how Christians talk. That is not how we believe. And if you can be happy doing whatever you want to do and ignoring what God's Word says, you're not a believer. That's what Jesus is pointing out. Jesus is saying loudly, follow me. I'm the one in charge. Let your life play out, and you're the bit character, and I'm the star. Live your life for Christ, because he is Lord. Let me read a few verses that have been written about Jesus. What 
Ephesians chapter 1, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Talking about Jesus now, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, the Father, put all things under his, the Son's feet, and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Going back to the render unto Caesar, who is Caesar, God is in control. The president's not in control. The Supreme Court's not in control. All of those things are under his feet. And he is the head of this body, the church. Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And I would add Supreme Court justices or presidential seats or mayors or city council people. All are created by him and for him. What is it Jesus said when the Roman soldier said, don't you realize I have the authority to give you death? And Jesus said, you wouldn't have any authority unless my father gave it to you. All things were created through him. Why? And for him. And Jesus is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is Lord over all. And he is telling those people to enter into the kingdom. You have to recognize that I am Lord. I am King of kings and Lord of lords. And so I call you today. Church is you. I don't know. I've said it so many different ways. It doesn't matter that you come to church. It doesn't matter if you preach. It doesn't matter what you do. If you've not made him Lord of your life, you can't earn your way to heaven. It's not possible. The only way that you can be saved is to cry out to God for mercy, recognizing that you're beyond hope. And as we come to this time of invitation, I call on you if you have never called out and said, Lord, you are my Lord, then I beg you to do that today. If you're a believer and you're laboring under the mistaken idea that Christianity is some kind of loose set of rules that you can kind of follow if it fits within your life, if you're a child of his, you will be chastised. He will deal with that. In fact, Paul says the way that we know that we're sons is because the father takes his belt off if we don't do what he tells us to do. I mean, I am 50 years old, and I can be in my parents' house today 
And if dad takes his belt off, that sound of leather going through the belt loops makes me a little sick. And if you're a Christian today and you're trying to live your life the way you want to, you're ignoring God's Word, you're not reading it, you're not spending time in it, it's not what you're basing your life on. If I'm supposed to live my life in the light of something, I'm going to be burying myself in it because that's what's going to be guiding me. If that's not what you know, this altar is open. There's nothing magical about these stairs and this carpet. But there is something amazing about taking a time in your life, drawing a line in the sand and saying, as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. If you're looking for a church to serve your king in, we would love to have you join us. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts so that we can be the people you called us to be. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that this is the pivot point of this entire book, that Luke is driving to Jesus asking this question so that these people would recognize what they have to do to be saved. Lord, we love you, and we pray that you would help us to recognize that you are Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.